Thank you for tuning in to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. I'm your host, Daniel McDonald. Today, I've invited writer and Georgia College faculty member Peter Selgin back to the WRGC studios to talk about the craft of writing in a new book he hopes will help other writers build successful bonds with their audience from page one. Peter Selgin is a novelist, essayist, playwright, editor, visual artist, and teacher. A brief list of his works includes the novels Life Goes to the Movies and The Watermaster, the short story collection Drowning Lessons, and a collection of essays entitled Confessions of a Left-Handed Man, an Artist's Memoir. We last spoke with him about his full-length memoir, The Inventors, which just won the Housatonic Book Award for Nonfiction. But another stream of his published output focuses on helping other writers master the craft. His latest book, Your First Page, First Pages and What They Tell Us About the Pages That Follow Them, is available now from Serving House Books. Peter Selgin, welcome back to Georgia College Connections. Thank you. It's nice to be back here. Well, I wanted to start off talking about writing as something that can be taught. Can writing be taught? This has been an age-old controversy about the question of whether writing can be taught. My answer to that is it not only can be taught, but it has to be taught for the simple reason that it has to be learned. It's true that there was a time when most of what writers learned, they learned from reading. I don't think that's changed at all. I think writers still learn from reading. The only difference is now that you, know, you have uh, programs classes, workshops, professors, instructors who guide that process of learning how to read, not only what other people have written and learn from it, but learn to read from what you write, learn from our own drafts, learn to edit ourselves, which is so much of the process. So I don't think anything's changed. And I also can say from my own experience as a writer that I learned a great deal from teachers, mainly, uh, also some from books, but my own experience as a writer uh, was one of having struggled for years to write, to teach myself, and then having had some very good mentorship, including one very dear mentor, Donald Newlove, who taught me more in a year or two than I had learned on my own in 10 years. So that really drove the lesson home. Yes, writing can be taught. I'm living proof. When you were starting out, did you have that concept that you could do it alone? You could do it without the help? The input that you needed was just simply the other great works that you were engaging in as a reader? I think that to some extent I did. I, you know, I, I started out, as we all do, sort of naive with a limited awareness. You know, I had read books. I had admired them. I was inspired to try it myself. And I did, and I wrote things, and they were mostly not very good. And I kept trying, and I kept writing. But at a certain point, my innocence was shed. I began to realize my limitations and to want to want more. And also, the responses that my writing was getting, uh, it, it wasn't meeting as much success as I wanted to. And I was very eager to have help to get guidance. Yeah, I think that at first I thought I could just do this on my own, that my raw abilities were all that I needed and that I knew everything I 
I needed to. And I do think it does take a certain amount of hubris to believe, for instance, that you, 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 know, you can write a novel. And I think that that serves us well up to a point. That belief in ourselves will get us far, but not far enough. Sooner or later, it really, really helps to have some guidance. And sooner or later, you're going to, because certainly with a novel, there's no question that it's going to, if you're lucky, end up with an agent or an editor, and you can be sure that those people are going to have things to say. They're not going to just say, you know, this is perfect. Let's publish it word for word. That doesn't happen. So what you hope is that you can get yourself to the point where you will be able to get an agent or an editor interested in your work. But even to get that far these days, you better know as much as you can. You just sent that a novel will not make it through the publication process untouched without that hand of an editor. We have these images in our mind of this rough-hewn artist. Are there those people with that native talent that propels them as far as it can, uh, maybe not all the way to reader's bookshelf, um, but to someplace close to it? Yes, I think there are those cases where you have someone who, working in relative isolation, who is probably very, very well-read, who is probably autodidactic and has taught themselves a lot, and who is self-critical and able to read what they write and, and be critical of it and edit themselves. I think those people exist, and I think they write things that succeed, and uh, they don't need that much guidance from outside. I think they're the exception to the rule. I think most of us need help, want help, can benefit from help. I think the literary community more and more consists of not isolated people working in isolation, but people working together somehow, either in graduate programs, but also forming their own communities with other writers. It's become a much less isolated situation than it might have been even, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. The writer working alone in a garret is a sort of antiquated model, I think. But it's one that works so well for us on the outside uh, to think about the writer working in isolation, the writer um, just calling up what is within them to, to create this work. You're listening to a conversation about writing, learning to write, and thoughts on the craft that can help aspiring writers and lifelong readers alike. On this edition of Georgia College Connections, I'm talking with writer and Georgia College faculty member Peter Selgin about his new book, Your First Page, which explores the bond created between writer and reader on the first page of every literary endeavor. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with more Georgia College Connections. Now, 
you said you yourself, uh, beginning, uh, had that naive thought that you could do it alone, and you had to come to that realization that help was necessary. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering if you might talk about how you came to that realization, and then how you took it further and became a teacher of writing yourself, and why you would dedicate yourself to that. Well, as I said, I had uh, one especially wonderful experience working with a mentor, working with a teacher. As I also said, I struggled on my own for many years, operating on the kind of possibly very self-inflated opinion about what I was able to do. And uh, the air started going out of that balloon, you know, slowly over a decade of writing things and, you know, writing a novel that didn't get published, writing another novel that didn't get published. And at some point, I realized that I probably needed some guidance, some help. And, you, you know, you're going to get it one way or another, you know. I showed my work to agents, and they uh, told me, you know, this isn't quite ready yet. You, you need to do such and such. My mentor, Don Newlove, who lives in Greenwich Village, I was very fortunate to have him go through my work. He would line edit every line. You know, I'd give him a story. I'd come back a week later. And it would be covered with ink. I mean, slathered with ink. Every other sentence crossed out and rewritten. Whole pages with X's drawn through them. And then he would have me sit next to him at his dining room table and read the before and after. And I remember him saying to me once, the first time we did that, he said, all right, I want you to read what you wrote and then read my version and tell me why my version is better. <laughs> you know, he made no bones about it. And it was better. And that's how I learned. And as I said, you know, uh, a year of that, my writing became so much better. And at that point, I realized, and this is a wonderful thing, that to be able to help other writers the way Don helped me, I thought, you know, what could be better? You know, I'd always enjoyed teaching, but then it really struck me that teaching writing could really be a fascinating thing to do. And, and uh, I had absolute faith that this was a good thing. That's when I uh, started dedicating myself to doing what I needed to do to teach as much as possible and sort of passing the torch, you know, paying it forward to others. In, to those who may not practice the craft of writing, can you describe how teaching has affected you as a writer? Oh, that's a really good question. And there's always that, that uh, issue of, you know, how does being so conscious of the process and really spending so much time in uh, wearing the sort of editor's cap, you know, where we look at writing and we analyze it and we try to figure out what's, what's working, what's not working, how can it be improved? And then to go back to one's own writing and try to wear that other cap that's necessary for, for getting a draft on paper and maybe forgetting a bit about technique and trusting our instincts a little bit more. Again, that's the, the first draft process, which is very private and which we do alone. You know, we're really alone with that first draft. I think it's mostly helped me. I think it certainly takes time away from my own writing, but I think I've learned a great deal and that I continue to learn things about writing that are helpful. That's after having done this for, gosh, it must be going on 20 years or so. But I don't think it hurts that much. You have to make time for the writing. That's where teaching can be a problem, you know, where you, you could give all your time to your students, and you need to put aside that time to do your own work.
And that's, that's a dilemma for every professor, I think. I think so many people who write probably think of editors as these red ink stained devils. Is there a certain joy to that work too? To editing? Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that once you embrace editing, it's tremendous fun. It's so much fun that uh, the danger is that you love editing so much that you just keep editing and editing and editing and don't want to let go of that process. And you need to let go at some point and go back and, and, and start generating new material and write that ugly first draft. It's a lot of fun to polish and make something as good as it can possibly be, but you have to let go. You're listening to a conversation about writing, learning to write, and thoughts on the craft that can help aspiring writers and lifelong readers alike. On this edition of Georgia College Connections, I'm talking with writer and Georgia College faculty member Peter Selgin about his new book, Your First Page, which explores the bond created between writer and reader on the first page of every literary endeavor. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with more Georgia College Connections. So I thought we might move to talking about what I consider to be a theory that you're putting forth in your new book. The premise of your first page is that almost everything that can go right or wrong in a work of fiction or memoir does so on the first page. Can you describe uh, how you came to this realization? Teaching workshops, working with writers, you're always analyzing texts, trying to understand what's making a piece of writing work or not. And it occurred to me during a conference that uh, we wanted to find a way to give as much feedback to as many writers as possible within a limited space of time. And I thought, well, what if we just look at those first 250, 300 words? What could be gleaned from that? And that way we could discuss in a two-hour workshop, you know, 10, 15 first pages and the exercise turned out so well, and people enjoyed and got so much about it. I had so many people respond. They said, you know, I learned more about my writing, either in general or about this particular work, from this first page discussion that I've learned in a, a semester-long workshop. And at that point, I said that, okay, this is something here. We've got something. The mini-workshop based on the first page and the more first pages I analyzed and the more we discussed, the more it became clear to me that nearly all the issues that a writer needed to look at were presented in that first page, that the first page was sort of the canary in the coal mine or, or the DNA sample of everything that followed. It just worked so well that I did more and more of these first page workshops, and then I started a blog and I invited writers to submit the first pages of their works for analysis. 
and we posted the first pages. We put them up online. And after I'd done about 100 of them, I realized I had material for a book. And I did a selection of those, put a book together, and that book is your first page. As I hear you tell it, and as I experience the book and, and some of the essays, um, well, I, I call them essays. Maybe these are perhaps blog posts is a, a more appropriate uh, term for what you put online. I see it as going uh, forward and uh, working with writers who are working on their works currently. Mm -hmm. Did you go back at all and analyze perhaps some of your favorite books in their first pages to see how it works in reverse? Well, actually, uh, there's part of the book that does look at and sample opening paragraphs, not always whole pages because of space requirements, but looks at the beginnings of published works. And in, in, often in the analysis of a work in progress, for an example, you know, I would pull, pull up the beginning of a published book to say, here's how another author handled a similar situation, a similar scene, a sim similar problem. So yeah, it's very important to, to be looking at published work too as a frame of reference. And I also think having that historical framework in looking at how prologues have been handled or how does someone begin a detective novel, what has been done before. So yeah, that is an important part of the discussion, and it's part of the book. Do you have any examples of beginnings that are especially important to you? Just one that comes to mind, fairly well known, Kafka's Metamorphosis, which is a short story, and it begins... Gregor Samsa woke up one day from uneasy dreams to discover that he had been transformed into a giant beetle. That opening is important because so many writers today, young writers especially, are very into fantasy and creating fantastic or fabulous worlds, alternative universes. And they spend a lot of time often explaining to the reader, doing what we call world building, where they they give all this exposition about how this world exists and what its rules are, and maybe it's governing warring factions and this and that, and it goes on and on and on, and, and you never get to the plot. And I use that as an example. I say, here is Kafka, who in one sentence throws us into a world in which a person can be transformed overnight into a giant beetle. And that's that. You either accept it and continue reading, having that world as a sort of fait accompli in the first sentence, or you throw the story down and refuse to keep reading. But he solves the problem of world building by making that first sentence create its own world. And he's done with it. So there's an important opening. Another example would be Call Me Ishmael, the first line of Moby Dick, where the character of a narrator is 90%, I would say, established in three words, that quality of strength, the difference between the narrator, the person who says, call me Ishmael, and the narrator who says, well, I guess you can call me Ishmael if you like, or my name is Ishmael. They're very different people. So how you can establish character instantly with an opening sentence. And we read novels, especially to discover people, to discover characters. So if you create character right off the bat, you've done a lot. What are some of the observations that you've made through this work um, that you would bring out for, for members of our radio audience? Well, 
as you mentioned, this idea of how do we build a bond with the reader? How do we get the reader to connect with this narrating person who's telling a story, perhaps, or a, or a nonfiction story? How does that bond get created? There are many ways, but one comes down to the question of establishing point of view. Who is the narrator? Who is telling this story? I think that average readers may not realize this, but that person speaking to us in a novel, a third-person novel, is not the author. It's a constructed character. Even if that narrator is never identified by name, or we never learn anything about that narrator, where they live, who they are, do they have children, are they rich, are they poor, we don't know. But what's very important, and one of the things I've learned in this process, is that it's extremely important for the writer to create that narrator in such a way to know that the narrator is not the author, and that that point of view is the difference between the narrator and the author. And very often what happens in in writing, especially with third-person fiction, is that what we're getting on the page is not that narrator's experience of the fictional world from within the fictional world, but the author telling us things that the author knows about the fictional world. And there's a difference between those two things. One of them puts us deep into a fictional world experience, and the other has us hearing from an author. And it's almost secondhand. Average readers may not be aware of this, but it results in a less satisfying reading experience, whether people know it or not. And so I think it's, it's useful not only for writers to have these awarenesses, but for readers too. I don't think it can hurt. Now, you mentioned it there in, in that last response. I want to go back to the preface of your first page to just try to talk a little more about it. You write, so many things happen on the first page of a book. There, within a paragraph or two, and sometimes even within the first sentence, a bond is formed between reader and writer, one that will endure, hopefully, for as many pages as the work is long. Let's talk a little bit more about that bond. What are the qualities of it when it is successful? I think one of the most important qualities, and I say this to my students all the time, speaking of editors, but I'm sure something of the sort applies to any reader, if you're an editor reading a story and you're very aware of a writer speaking to you, of the writing, and that's what comes at you, another writer trying to get your attention. Or you read a story and within the first line, instead of feeling that someone is writing, that there's a writer trying to claim your attention, but there's a human voice speaking to you, a human being speaking to you, is much harder to resist than a writer writing especially if you're an editor. I mean, editors get tired of writers. Here's another writer trying to get my attention. Oh, boy. But when a human voice comes and speaks to you and says something possibly very, very simple and humble, I always like to use the example, on Wednesdays, my mother worked at the fruit stand. Now, there's nothing grabby or sensational about that sentence, but there's a human quality to it that reaches out to us. I would keep reading. I would listen. So establishing a human voice rather than a writer's voice. And there are things that writers do that sort of say, hi, I'm a writer, that beginning writers anyway do almost automatically, that can cause that sort of sense that you're not 
hearing from a human being, but from a writer. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's one of the kinds of ways that you can establish a bond by appealing to the reader with a human voice. But I think in the popular sense, uh, there's a lot of identity and a lot of identity trappings that come along with putting yourself out there as a writer. I mean, how do you become conscious of those things when you are uh, practicing what I think for uh, many writers, I would hope they would think is their life pursuit? Mm. Also a good question. And uh, there's a lot of emphasis given in workshops and conferences to the identity of the writer. You know, I'm a writer, wanting to be a writer. I feel differently about that. I try to tell my students, you know, forget about whether you are a writer or not. Be writing. Think of writing as a verb rather than an identity, as a, something that we do. Uh, we do a lot of things. You know, if I go home and cook myself a nice meal, I guess you could say I am a cook during that period. But I don't identify myself as a cook. And I think that we get too hung up on the identity of the writer when we should pay more attention to the act of writing rather than the identity. And I think that in doing that, uh, we're better positioned to be the sort of humble servants of our material, to be the humble servant of a story. We're there to serve the stories we want to tell. We're not there to say to the world, I'm a writer, look at me. We're here to say, enter the world of this story. I'm here to get that story to you. That's my job. And to put you in that world. My identity as a writer should be beside the point. I don't even want you to notice the writer here. I want you to be in the world of the story. And those are two very different things. You're listening to a conversation about writing, learning to write, and thoughts on the craft that can help aspiring writers and lifelong readers alike. On this edition of Georgia College Connections, I'm talking with writer and Georgia College faculty member Peter Selgin about his new book, Your First Page, which explores the bond created between writer and reader on the first page of every literary endeavor. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with more Georgia College Connections. Or some of the other ways that writers either fail to realize or even sabotage that bond between the reader and the writer? One of the ways that's pretty common is through something that I call false suspense. It's suspense that's created sort of artificially by a writer who sort of sneakily hides information from us, where their notion is if, if I'm coy with the reader, if I keep things from them, if I don't tell them things, if I hold back, the reader will keep reading in order to figure out what they haven't been told. Or in the worst cases, they keep reading to figure out what the heck they're reading. 
what I say to that is, if you have a story to tell, don't withhold. Trust the fact that by giving the reader everything they need, you actually create suspense. You create the desire on the reader's part not to know what the heck they're reading, but to know what's going to happen next, given what they already know, given what they know about a character, what they know about the situation the character's in, they want to know even more. So you feed the reader's appetite for knowledge, not by withholding, by being stingy, by being coy, but by being generous. And that's one of the things that comes up all the time, false suspense versus real suspense. How do you build it? Is that a danger that we're in at this time? I mean, there's such a, I think, a premium paid on, on being coy, um, hiding those things. Are, are we at a time where there are certain uh, aspects of our society and our culture uh, that are working against the honest story? Um, I don't know that it's a societal thing. I think that it's more an unconfident writer feeling that they need to hold back, not having enough confidence in your material, in your story, in the power of what you've got to put your cards on the table. You know, it's like bluffing with a poker hand. If you've got a good hand, you don't need to bluff. You can show your cards. But a lot of uh, young writers can be very insecure and they feel that the only way they can gain the reader's curiosity is by not telling us that the character is actually a dog and not a human being or something like that. And I say, let us know that it's a dog. We'll still be interested if there's a story there. It takes so much confidence just to leap out there, even in the privacy of your own home, and start that journey of, of telling that story. Um, how do we enable ourselves uh, to put it all out there. If there is, you know, the, the confidence needed to get started, um, how do you overcome that which is holding back the confidence to uh, be free and open with what you're trying to share? I think that the more we invest our egos in success or failure or involve our egos in any way in the process, the more it sets us up for intimidation and fear. And I think that one solution, if, if possible, is to try to put our egos aside. And the way to do that is to, again, become the servant of the story. Put your identity, yourself, make yourself less important except as a delivery system for something other than you, for the story. And uh, by being that story's humble servant. So, for instance, uh, I emphasize in my teaching and in the book how precision and clarity are so hard to achieve, but so important. And when we're focused on precision, we're not thinking about our egos. We're thinking about just doing something right, getting it just right. And that's a very humble task. It's a task that takes great skill, but it's humble. And things like focusing on precision can take away that, that sort of fear of being judged somehow. You know, we're just trying to get something right. I think that when you cook a meal, when you file a piece of wood to make uh, a beautiful box, or you engage yourself in some skill, your ego's not invested in those tasks. And I think similarly, the writer is in a better place when we're totally invested in solving a problem or doing something precisely rather than, you know, what are they going to think of me? Are they going to think I'm a writer or not? 
if they read this? That's the wrong question. Serve the material. Is that something that you learned in your father's workshop? Your last memoir was The Inventors, and you paint this picture of your father working. Is that something that rubbed off on you in, in, your, in your work? I'm not sure. I don't know if I came on that notion then. You know, when I watched my father make his inventions, it was fascinating how humbly he was serving his creations. What that did to me growing up was to really make me want to make things. You know, the idea of going into a, a workshop or a laboratory and making something that wasn't there before, that's what my father gave me. <clears throat> Uh, more than any sort of awareness of the need to put my ego aside. My, my father was very egocentric, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure if, if he modeled that for me. Yeah. And uh, going off of that early uh, desire to make things, is the writing a fulfillment of that childhood dream, or is it something different? No, I think it is. I think that there was a sort of childhood idea put into my head by my father's example, that one could make things that weren't there to begin with, you know, to create something and give it its, its existence, whether it's an invention, a mechanical invention, a painting, or something made out of words. I thought it was wonderful then, and I continue to feel that that, that is a wonderful thing to be able to do, whether we do it for a living, for money, or we just do it, but to bring something into the world that wasn't there, uh, no, it's terrific. I absolutely believe in it. You're listening to a conversation about writing, learning to write, and thoughts on the craft that can help aspiring writers and lifelong readers alike. On this edition of Georgia College Connections, I'm talking with writer and Georgia College faculty member Peter Selgin about his new book, Your First Page, which explores the bond created between writer and reader on the first page of every literary endeavor. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back with more Georgia College Connections. How does the writer approach the first page? I think if a writer sits down at a blank sheet of paper with a story in mind and frets over the first page, that that's just you know, terribly intimidating. I think you have to get into the work, whether it's a memoir, a story, a novel, whatever it is. You have to write what, what you have to write with that first draft, even if the first scene you have may occur halfway or two-thirds through the novel. Well, that's what you've got. Go ahead and write that scene. Don't worry about the great opening line. You know, that's too self-conscious. And very often, you know, a writer writes reams of material before even really understanding exactly the story or the work that they're creating. And then they start a new draft with that understanding that they've gained from the, 
from the exploratory first draft. And with that understanding, they're more prepared to know where and how to begin and what the reader needs and what the story needs. And then they might get that perfect first sentence. It's also possible that a first sentence just comes to you and is the impetus for a piece of writing. We get lucky that way sometimes. I wrote a short story that's in my collection, Drowning Lesson. You know, I dreamed the first two lines, which I can quote, Picasso cannot drive. He finds cars too amusing. I dreamed those two lines, and I said, okay, there's a story to go with that. And then I wrote the story. I figured it out. But that was one story in a collection of uh, 15, and it doesn't happen that way most of the time for me. So I think we have to get stuff down on paper and then ultimately shape it. And we may find that our best opening foot forward is on page 150 and move that around and and start there. Uh, Or we may write 100, 200 pages of a rough draft and on page 201 we realize we've got to the beginning of the book and that's where we need to start. So... And I want to go back to um, an earlier conversation we had about some of the different hands uh, that are on that work. Can you describe the negotiation that goes on concerning first pages as, I guess, the the writer starts it, uh, but then as they uh, try to put it into what may be its final form? And you're talking about editors or such? Uh, editors or such, but possibly even uh, the differing parts of the writer themselves that mm-hmm. may have differing opinions of uh, where to begin or what constitutes an ending, etc. What you want to do with the first page, I mean, again, there are no hard, fast rules, but speaking really broadly, is you want to raise the questions that the rest of the story or book is going to answer. You want to frame those questions. You want to set up, you want to give your reason, your reader the reasons to keep reading and the justification for everything that follows. And uh, there are different ways you can do that. You can do that with a scene. You know, you, you may want to establish setting first as the ideal way into a story, the way Steinbeck does it so much of the time. But, um, you know, again, there's no, there's no right solution to the problem. But once you've decided on a strategy for a first page, then you can start looking at how that page is written and if it's doing everything it needs to do. Is the first page necessarily on page one? Ultimately, it certainly is. You know, in the published work, yeah, that's going to be it. But in, in the drafting process, uh, as I said, it may be that your best first page is deep into what you've written and, and that uh, just ran into that experience with a friend who's a writer who's working on a very interesting novel and had an opening that was very good. But then we both realized that there was a scene deep into the novel that absolutely frames the story better. And without giving anything away, the scene is a, a scene in which a woman is looking at a uh, Uh, suspects in a police lineup. And I won't say more than that, but that scene absolutely frames the issues that would compel the reader to keep reading to find out certain things. And so you'd move it from, from deep within the book. And what is the work ahead of that writer now that you found their first page in the body of their work? What do they need to do now? 
Or maybe even what is their reaction to that? It was a discussion. I try not to tell writers, you must do this, but to suggest possibilities. And in this case, the author felt very sure that that was the right thing to do. And not just commercially, but artistically. You know, there are commercial considerations. What's going to keep an editor's and an agent's attention? What's going to make a book or a project more saleable? But often the answers are, are the same. The, the same thing that makes it more saleable also makes it a better artistic choice. It's just the right thing to do. So in that case, the author is going to make that little change. So it's not actually that difficult to move a, a chunk from one part of a book to another. You know. I, I will take your word for it because hearing that story, I imagine um, depending on where you found uh, that opening scene in the story, I can, I can only imagine the work that it would take to put it where it needs to be and then whether or not you might have to uh, do much more work to the rest of the story to make that, that fit. It could, it could be very difficult, but from my experience, that kind of thing isn't really that difficult. You know, you may have to reshape the scene a little bit, and you may have to do a little bit of surgery to address where, where it was grafted from, but you know, that doesn't sound too arduous to me. And you may just get back to that scene later in the book. And obviously, you don't want to repeat the same words, but you may sum it up again and put us back there and revisit it. Or you may skip it entirely, you know, and, and jump ahead of it or just mention that it has happened. But no, there are problems and there are problems, but they can be solved, usually. Now, you just described working with a writer on this theory. What has been the reaction as you've gone out and conducted these workshops and these conferences uh, with writers and had them, uh, what I, I feel is bravely share their first pages with you? Well, one of the things we've done is keep it anonymous sometimes, where the pages are discussed anonymously, and that's very helpful. But we've done it the other way, too, where people just bring, a, bring in a, a first page and, and we do a, a, a critique. The reaction's been really, really positive. In fact, right now, there's an author's website hosted by a, a woman named Jane Friedman, who is sort of the guru of the business of writing. She has guided many, many writers through the process of marketing their work, getting agents, all the kind of business things associated. And she's hosting uh, first critiques based on the book, your first page. And it's been very, very popular. So we invite people to submit first pages, as I did before, uh, this time with a modest fee to cover you know, the, the time that goes into it. And we put up a critique. And then uh, other writers are invited to chime in and say what they think. And sometimes they disagree with the critique and they say why, but it's an interesting sort of forum. But uh, no, it's been very, very popular. And I think people have said they just find it useful because, again, discussing a whole novel is very unwieldy. And it's one of the problems with writers' workshops. How do you address a 300-page novel? Well, you can't. But if the novelist can get that beginning right, it lays the foundation and sort of provides a template for them to move from there. How do you know when you've gotten that first page right? You read it to people, you share it, you get feedback, you read it out loud, you see, you can feel how it holds people's attentions. Are you ever 100% sure that, that something is absolutely perfect and can't be improved? I, I don't know. 
I'm writing a novel now, and the first page has pretty much been set for a long time. I don't think it'll be changed, and I'm very happy with it. Um, would some other novelist take the same situation and maybe approach it differently and just as well or better? Possibly. But I know that I feel satisfied with what I've done. You know, at some point, it, we do have to sort of say, okay, this, this is working. It's doing the job. Do I apply my own theories, my own ideas? Yeah, I think so. I hope so. I hope so. Well, in that sense, has it changed the way that you approach your writing, uh, but particularly those first pages? Hard to say, because the writing and the teaching have occurred simultaneously, and you know, it's often hard to see how one is influencing the other, uh, and vice versa. I would say that I've grown more aware, and yeah, but this, uh, this last book, it did make me sort of take a hard look at that first page and say, you know, what would the critique look like? What would my own critique be of this if it came to me, uh, if I were to discuss it? Um, And uh, I think I would uh, give it a passing grade, I guess. You're listening to a conversation about writing, learning to write, in thoughts on the craft that can help aspiring writers and lifelong readers alike. On this edition of Georgia College Connections, I'm talking with writer and Georgia College faculty member Peter Selgin about his new book, Your First Page, which explores the bond created between writer and reader on the first page of every literary endeavor. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with more Georgia College Connections. Talking in a conversation that I think is very much for writers, uh, but I want to um, advocate for for the readers now. Does the reader benefit from um, knowing and understanding, you know, what's behind the writer's curtain? Mm-hmm. I think that it's analogous to the wine drinker and how much knowing about vintages, vineyards, and being aware and sophisticated about wines helps us to enjoy the taste of the wine when we drink it. And I, I think it does. I think it's a, a different appreciation than we might have had without knowing anything. Uh, same way with a, a dish in a restaurant. You know, you can eat a meal and not have any idea how it's prepared, what the ingredients are, what went into it. But I think generally the more you know about something, the greater your appreciation. It's enhanced. I mean, we know that you, you know, if someone looks at a house or a painting or a beautiful car and knows things about what makes a great automobile or a house or anything man-made, uh, comes to it with a greater sense of appreciation. So I think it is of interest to readers who are not writers, 
to readers who want to understand how works are written. And I think that the reading experience will be changed, perhaps, but no less pleasurable. It's a different kind of pleasure to read a book with conscious awareness of, of the writer's choices than just reading it as, a, as someone without that awareness. But there's a different kind of pleasure. I think that it's true that once you know a lot of these things, it's hard to unknow them. It's hard to read a book without that awareness, to make it go away and approach it innocently. On the other hand, if a writer is really doing his or her job very, very well, they pull you into the world of the story so deeply that even if you're a very sophisticated reader aware of craft, they'll still get you. They'll still make you forget everything but the story. It'll still work. So in a way, it sort of just tests the writing even more. With the work that you've done to better understand the first page in the role that it has in the entire story, uh, do you have any advice for readers and how they might approach that first uh, moment of a story? I know I hope for readers to be as sophisticated as possible. I want readers to really be as critical and to read with as much sophistication as, as possible, the same way I think a chef in a restaurant hopes that every person who walks into his restaurant knows something about really good cooking and can appreciate his or her talents more because of what they know. So I think ideally we, we want our readers to be as sophisticated as, as can be. And I also encourage readers to skip all the blurbs, skip all the back cover descriptions and all this hype and the reviews and the advertisements, I say go to that first page. I say just hear that voice that comes to you, those words, and make your judgment based on that and nothing else. You know, don't be pulled in by hype. Uh, the books that are most hyped, often that are on bestseller lists, are not always the best books. And so... I encourage, go to, go to the first page. Make that the thing you base your decision to buy a book on. You know, it's so easy now with Amazon. Search inside this book. Go right to that first page. Maybe read your first page first so you have a greater awareness and sophistication and, and then go and look at first pages. But the way I used to find books to read was I'd go into libraries, use bookstores, and just pull books off the shelf for whatever reason and go right to that first page and start reading and, and hear, hear that narrator, hear that human voice, and see if I connect with it or not. And then I'd take it home if I did. Now, in one of the essays you've adapted from the book, your first page, uh, you know, you say the primary purpose of fiction is to render experiences. Is that why you write? Yes, absolutely. The reason I write even nonfiction is to create and share an experience. What was my experience of living in New York City, uh, which I did for a long time? I wrote an essay about that, and my, my goal was to share that experience. I think with everything that I've ever written, there's been that desire to recreate or create 
an experience and share it with the reader, putting them into the experience as much as possible, making it their experience. And I, I do think that's why creative writers write among others. There's also, you know, ideas we want to share and, and other things. But I think much of it is wanting to share experiences. We're coming to the close of our time this evening. I've asked you a lot, but I've wonder, I'm wondering, if, is there anything else that you'd like to share um, about uh, your first page and the ideas you're putting forth or what you'd like other writers to know and audience members? <laughs> I think that uh, what I want other writers to know is something that probably most of them are aware of. And that is that, you know, the first page, for better or worse, with respect to readers, with respect to editors, with respect to agents, is crucial. I think people are aware of that. I'm not sure how aware of it they are. But these days, especially where the competition is so severe, and there are so many competent writers vying for the attention of magazines, agents, publishers, it's unlikely that an agent or an editor these days facing piles of submissions, manuscripts, will read much beyond a first page if that first page doesn't get their attention. And by getting their attention, I don't mean grabbing them by the throat. I, I dislike that kind of talk about, you know, the writer has to grab the reader by the throat. No, they don't. They don't need to be violent. They don't use to, need to use force. But they do have to compel. And they do have to earn our respect. And we have to know as writers that readers, we owe readers everything. They owe us nothing. Readers can be as rude as they want in the privacy of their home with our books or manuscript. They can toss it aside after a sentence. They can put it down to go to the bathroom or get a cup of coffee and never look at it again. They have that right. And if we're going to hold their attention, we have to really consider everything, you know. And, and, uh, and I think that's the number one message that this book exists to deal with, to talk about. So, and and it is, uh, it's just a fact of life that readers hold all the cards. In what are you working on right now? What is next for you? I'm working on a novel. Its title is Duplicity, and it's a novel about twins, and I hope to finish a draft a year and a half from now. Uh, at least that's my schedule. And without going into too much detail, it is a novel that deals with the issue of identity and the good old nature versus nurture. Who are we really? How much of who we are is determined by our DNA? How possible is it to really change? I am a twin. I have a twin brother. The book is not about George, but um, it informed my writing of this novel, of which I've, I've been having a tremendous uh, good time with it so far. But it does deal with the issue of identity, and I think probably some listeners will figure out possibly how that plays into the plot 
with uh, twins. I'll just say that one twin is the successful twin and one twin is the failure and that their roles at a certain point are reversed. Well, I will look forward to welcoming you back and talking about it soon on another edition of Georgia College Connections. Me too. Me too. Peter Zeldin, I just want to thank you for spending the time uh, talking with me today and talking to our radio audience about your new book, Your First Page. It's been my pleasure. You just heard a conversation with writer and Georgia College faculty member Peter Selgin about his new book, Your First Page. First pages and what they tell us about the pages that follow them. Your First Page is out now from Serving House Books. You can learn more at peterselgin.com. I've been your host, Daniel McDonald. It has been my pleasure spending this portion of the evening with you here on Georgia College Connections. And I want you to know that I look forward to convening with you next time.